0: As you're turning to Galatians chapter 3, here's an observation about the passage we're about to read. Paul uses the word faith six times in nine verses, and so I think we can safely say that's a point of emphasis on this passage. So recognizing that, listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. "'O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified.' Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. and the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together.
1: Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we um, prepare to come underneath the teaching of Your Word, we pray that You would open our eyes, open our hearts, um, that no matter how we come through these doors today, whether we're anxious or bitter uh, or happy, um, whether we come through these doors with great doubts and skepticism, or whether we come through these doors convinced uh, entirely. We pray that You would meet with us all, um, and that You would deal with us all, that You would remind us that no matter the way we come through these doors, uh, the truth is that we're all the same, because we are all far more broken than we could ever imagine, um, But we also need, together, to see the good news of the gospel, to be reminded that though we are far more broken than we can imagine, because of Jesus, we are also far more loved and far more accepted, far more secure and approved of than we could have ever dreamed possible. And so we pray that you would take us this morning to that good news, and that with it you would transform us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Please be seated. At this time, the children uh, ages three to first grade are dismissed to children's church. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to your class. On Sunday mornings, we've been going through Paul's letter to the Galatians, and this morning, Uh, we turn our attention to the passage that was read for us earlier in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Now, if you read through um, Galatians 1 and 2, um, you'll see very obviously that Paul has been very direct in his language. Uh, He's not beating around the bush. He's getting right to the point. Um, But here's the deal. He's been direct, but at the beginning of chapter 3 he gets really personal. Um, all of a sudden, he says, "'O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you?' Um, one scholar tried to bring that language uh, of that verse into contemporary language and tried translating it this way, "Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, um, surely you can't be so idiotic.'" Um, See, he's getting very, very personal. Uh, So the question is, what's so urgent and important for Paul to grab his reader's attention with language like that? Um, And here it is. He wants to give them the key, the key to living the Christian life. Um, They've gotten off track, right? And he's calling them back to the key to the vital, living, dynamic, transforming power of the Christian life. And and that key, he is arguing, which we'll see, is to go on living by faith. Um, The key, he's saying, is to end the way you began by faith. Um, I I love watching uh, time-lapse photography. It just fascinates me uh, for some reason, but… You know, it's when a camera is focused on a, a landscape or, or a particular object, uh, and it captures images at intervals throughout a day. And when those individual images are pulled together, time is compressed. Um, and when time is compressed like that, and you're able to see like a 24-hour period in a matter of seconds… All of a sudden, you can see things that were once unobservable by the naked eye, right? And a great example of this is, is a camera that's focused on a flower for a 24-hour period. Um, you know, we would all say that a flower is a living thing, um, that it's alive. But by the naked eye, you can't see a flower doing anything. Um, but in time-lapse photography, you can actually see a flower open its petals to the morning light of the sun, and you can watch how that flower throughout the course of a day traces the arc of the sun in the sky all day long. And here's the deal. It, there is a simple but profound and powerful beauty to that, right? You knew intellectually that that flower was alive, but to see it move like that, um, that's remarkable, right? It visually impresses the truth of that flower's life and vitality upon you. Now, you know, lots of people have left Christianity and have left the church because they see in the church and in the people of the church a cold, lifeless, and dead orthodoxy, right? They see a a system of beliefs, um, but no life, no real spiritual vitality. And, you know, that might even be the case for some of you today, um, that you are questioning and wondering if there is any real life to this gospel stuff. And that, I think, is a very fair question. And I want to invite you into this passage this morning to hear Paul explain the key to Christian living, and how living by faith produces a real, authentic, spiritual vitality of life that can actually be seen. Um, And to really hear what Paul says in this passage, I think, is to be confronted with a very simple but profound and powerful beauty, because it answers the right and deep longing of our hearts for real, authentic life power, and vitality. Now, here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take a look at this passage, but we're going to look at the verses a little bit out of order. Um, But these are the three things that I want you to see this morning. First, I want you to see the gospel announced in the latter half of our passage, and then I want you to see the gospel experienced in the first half. And then in the last point, I want us to stand back from the hole a little bit to see the gospel lived. Okay, so first, the gospel announced. Now, before we get to this great stuff that Paul has to say about the Spirit in verses 1 through 5, we need to see the argument that Paul is making from an announcement in Scripture to and about Abraham, specifically from the book of Genesis. And we need to see that first, because the Spirit that Paul is talking about, the Spirit never works apart from God's Word, but through and by God's Word, and we'll say more about that in a few moments. But right up front, I want you to see the absolute genius of Paul's argument and what he's doing by using this example from Abraham's life in Genesis. And to, and to really see it, I need you to get something and, and remind you a little bit of the context. Paul wrote this letter to Christians in Galatia um, who were being confused. They were being bewitched, as Paul wrote here. They were being led astray By false teachers. Paul had gone to Galatia and he had preached the gospel and he had set up these churches. And after he he left, false teachers had come into Galatia, right? And they were saying something like this They were saying, Paul did a good job getting you started, right? It's true, you need to believe in Jesus, but he didn't give you the whole story. He watered it down for you. If you want to be assured, that God loves you and will accept you, if you want assurance that God sees you as a beauty, you need to believe in Jesus and you also need to follow these rules and these ceremonies. And let me put it like this. They were saying you need to believe in Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough. There are some things you need to do in addition, right? And in order, there are some things that you need to complete in order that you would have assurance that you belong to God and are perfectly accepted and loved by Him. And one of those ceremonies or laws that they thought was left incomplete and to be completed by us was circumcision. And they would have said something like this, to know you're really God's people And to be assured that you're loved, you need to be like Abraham and all his descendants and be circumcised, right? So much so, did they believe this, that they earned the name the circumcision party, which is what Paul calls them in chapter 2, verse 12. And if the circumcision party had a theme song, it would have gone something like this. Okay. (laughs) Father Abraham... Have many sons, <laughs> many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, but you are not. <laughs> so let's get together for a little procedure called circumcision, right? Um, now, listen. Okay. Yes, that was humiliating. My kids are going to um, make fun of me for a while about that. Um, and I, 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 I want to say this. If... If you're visiting this morning, that's the first time I've ever sang in public, and I promise, I promise you, come again, I will never sing in public again. Um, but listen, they would have appealed to Abraham, and this is what they would have done. They would have said, go back and read Genesis. Go read Genesis 17, because that's where God told Abraham and every generation after him to be circumcised. Do you want to be included In the promise of salvation that God made to Abraham, they would have said, then do what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 17. And here's the genius of Paul's argument, right? He appealed to Abraham too. But he went back further in time. Because in Genesis, or in verse 6, he quoted Genesis 15. And in verse 8, he quoted Genesis 12. And it's like Paul was saying this, Sure, Abraham was circumcised, but go back further in scripture, in scripture to see Scripture's announcement to and about Abraham. Circumcision has nothing to do with how Abraham was seen as righteous in God's eyes, right? It had, it had nothing to do with how Abraham was assured of God's love and acceptance. It had nothing to do with why Abraham was seen as beautiful in God's eyes. How did Abraham get a perfectly righteous record so that he could know and be assured that God loved and accepted him? It was announced in Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now I can only scratch the surface of this fascinating statement that Paul makes in verse 8. But I really really want you to hear this. Listen to just listen to it again. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel preach the gospel to Abraham. The scripture announced the gospel to Abraham. Thousands of years before Jesus came, Scripture preached and announced the gospel to Abraham. He's saying the gospel, that simply by believing in what Jesus came to do and accomplish for you, that has always been God's message. That has always been God's plan of salvation. I mean, sure, it, for Abraham, the gospel was nowhere as near, filled out and fleshed out for us uh, for him as it is for us today. But he was believing in the promise of Jesus, right? It, it was there. Salvation will never come through your striving or your doing or your effort or your disciplined behavior or your morality. It's going to come as a gift that can only be received by faith this is the good news that was announced to Abraham in Scripture. I heard one preacher say that there's this bipolar truth about Scripture, right? And that is, you can't understand the gospel without Scripture, but you also can't understand the Scripture without the gospel. On every page, even in Genesis, the the Scriptures have been announcing God's message and plan of salvation by grace through faith alone. If you want the blessing of Abraham, Paul is saying, look at verse 9, don't do anything. Instead, be like Abraham and simply believe and live by faith. You know, I love authors and storytellers who are able to make great use of the art of foreshadowing in their writing, and they drop these clues, you know, along the way, that as you're reading, you know that they're important, right? But enough is hidden that it's just a taste and it's just a seed, Right? It's there, but it's not filled out, and it's not fleshed out in its entirety. But eventually, you finish the story, and, and when you finish the story, you have this aha moment where everything starts coming together, and everything is pulled together, and you see everything fleshed out in its entirety. And guess what happens when you encounter a truly masterful storyteller like that? You want to go back and reread those same books again And again and again. What does it look like to read the Bible like that and to see the gospel announced on every page of Scripture that our God is a God of grace who saves simply by faith, who gives righteousness simply through belief? Listen, this is a favorite quote of mine. It's a little long, but I don't think I've used it for a couple of years. Um, So I think it comes from, um, from Sinclair Ferguson. But to see the gospel announced on every page is to see that Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, and whose obedience is now imputed to us. It is to see that Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain, has, has blood that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to, go, to leave all of the comfortable and familiar and go into the void, not knowing where he went. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father, but sacrificed by his Father on the mount. While God said to Abraham, Now I know you love me because you did not withhold your only Son from me. Now we at the foot of the cross can say, Now we know you love us because you did not withhold your only Son from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is at the right hand of the king and forgives those who betrayed him and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, right? The truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life, who didn't just say, if I perish, I perish. He says, when I perish. When I perish, I'll perish for them to save my people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who is cast out into the storm of God's justice in order to bring us in. Right? He's the real Passover lamb. He's the true priest. He's the true king. He's the true lamb. Right? He's the true light and the true bread. He has never had a different plan or a different message The God of heaven and earth has written you a love letter better than any Valentine you could possibly get this week. If you want to come to God and know that he loves you and accepts you and sees you as beautiful, be like Abraham. Stop your striving and stop your doing and only believe. Trust in the one given for you. And Paul says, Genesis says, the Bible says, on every page you will be counted as righteous in God's sight. Not because of your righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the one who gave himself for you, who perished for you, who was sacrificed for you, whose blood cries out for your acquittal and not for your condemnation. Let's move on. Second, let's consider the gospel experienced. And here's where we want to start tying things together a bit here to see the key to this vital, life-giving, dynamic, transforming power of the gospel. See, there was an objective piece to Paul's argument where he was saying, look at Abraham. But here comes the subjective piece. The gospel experienced in verse four. There's a Greek word that's translated "suffer" in the in the translation we read earlier, and it's an interesting Greek word because it can also be translated "experience." And you might even have a footnote in your Bible that tells you that, which I think is the better translation. Did you experience so many things in vain? Paul was asking, and re- Paul wants to know what happened when you experienced the gospel. And that's really what all these rhetorical questions are about in the first half of our passage. They experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, not when they kept the law, but when they heard the gospel announced and believed it in verse 2. They began their life and spiritual vitality with the Spirit, verse 3. Why would they now, Paul is asking, try to complete or be perfected by the flesh? Right, That is, by their own striving and their own doing. They saw God, by His Spirit, work miracles among them, verse 5. That is, they saw unmistakably God's activity in their lives. The Spirit didn't work because of their obedience to the law. The Spirit worked because they heard the gospel announced and believed it. This is Paul's subjective argument. You experienced, he's saying, the life-giving dynamic power of the Spirit in your life. And he's saying, don't try to go on now living another way. Right? He's he's saying the Spirit didn't come into your life because you did something, but because you believed something, because you received the gospel by faith, so go on living by faith. Here's the question that we have to answer. How do you know Whether the Spirit has come into your life. Here's what Paul wrote in verse 1 It was before your eyes, before your eyes, that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. When or how did the Galatians see Jesus publicly portrayed as crucified? Because they didn't live in Palestine right? They weren't there when Jesus was crucified. So when or how did Jesus appear before their eyes as crucified? Here's what happened. Paul came and announced the gospel to them from the Scriptures. And when they heard the gospel, Paul is saying, there was a time, there was a moment when the information about the gospel became real to you. Right, Over and over again in the Bible, the Bible uses sensory language to to describe the Spirit's activity of making the gospel real to us. So, for example, Paul prayed for the Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. But one of my favorite examples of the sensory language is in Luke 24. The resurrected Jesus was walking with two disciples who didn't recognize him after his crucifixion. They were in total despair about Jesus being crucified, and he was with them, but they couldn't see him, right, is what the passage says. But then it says in Luke 24, verse 31, that while they were eating with him, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. See, all of a sudden, they realized that death couldn't hold Jesus and that he had come back to life and he had burst the cords of death for them. But that's just one example in that passage, but there's more. Because as they reflected on how Jesus had opened all the Scriptures to them and what they said about him, it says this in the next verse. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures. How do you know whether the Spirit has come into your life? The famous preacher, John Wesley, wrote in his journal about his conversion during a Bible study. He wrote this. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. Listen, I'm not asking here simply if you intellectually believe the right content or information about the gospel. I'm asking, have you experienced the gospel in your life? And maybe it wasn't for you as dramatic as it was for somebody like John Wesley, but to experience the gospel is to have the eyes of your heart opened for the truth of it to become real to you, to sense and know that Jesus didn't just die for sins in general, but that he came and he died for you, that you were on his heart when he was on the cross. That's to see him publicly portrayed as crucified for you. Have you read the scriptures Or sat beneath the preaching of the scriptures? And have you had this experience where all of a sudden you stopped taking notes? And you just sat before the beauty of Jesus. And you saw his beauty. Have you ever felt your heart strangely warmed to hear of Jesus' love for sinners? Because you know that that means he must love you and can love you. Have you ever heard the stories of Jesus' life, suffering, death, and resurrection, and had your eyes open to realize that everything He did, He did for you? That is the work of the Spirit in your life. The Spirit has to make the gospel real to you for you to become a Christian. So if you have that in your mind, now come back with me to the key to living the Christian life. Because Paul is saying, go on living the way you began the Christian life, by faith. That means this, that you are meant in your life to have the beauty of Jesus, his love for you, his life, death, and resurrection before your eyes continually. I'm going to make, I'm going to warn you here. I'm going to use a negative illustration, but it's to make my point here, okay? I remember a long time ago, hearing this story that a preacher told um, about a time where he was talking uh, to a man who had been unfaithful to his wife, and he had been unfaithful and he carried on with this affair for years and years. And the preacher asked him this question: "How did you go go through it for so long?" And the man told him that his wife's mother had been very ill. And so on the weekends, when his wife went to care for her mother, his mistress came over. And then he said something like this. Whenever she came over, the first thing we had to do was to go through the entire house. And everywhere there was a picture of my wife, we would turn it upside down. Pictures on the refrigerator were turned so only the back of the photo could be seen. Pictures on the coffee table were laid down flat. And pictures on the wall were turned around. And so the preacher asked why they had to do that first. And he said this, The only way I could go through with it was to not see her face. To not see her smile. To not see her in those pictures beaming. And love for me. Now listen, I warned you it was negative, okay? But now I need you to listen to me. What does it mean to not only begin the Christian life by faith, but to go on living by faith? It is to go on seeing your Savior beaming in love over you. It is to go on realizing that you could never earn, that you could never do anything to gain or merit his acceptance of you, but he gave himself for you. It is to daily and moment by moment live your life before the one whose smile rests upon you. Now, if you had that, and if you walked around with that experience in your life, what would you do? What would you not do? If you saw that by faith, In what ways would you be different if you experienced the smile of God upon you? How would all your relationships be different? How differently would you handle criticism? How differently would you handle praise? How differently would you handle suffering in your life? Here's what I think. If you knew you were living under the perfect approval, acceptance, love, and smile of God, no one would ever be able to accuse you of a cold and lifeless and dead orthodoxy. Now, we have a third point, which I'm going to be quick with, okay? Because I want to make some application here. And that's the gospel lived in this last point. I want to mention one little thing here and then get to some application. In verse 3, Paul asks these two questions. Are you so foolish? And then having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Greek word there for being perfected, it's a word epithelesta. And um, the root of that word is the, word, the Greek word telos, right? And it's the same root word that John's gospel tells us Jesus cried out when he was on the cross, when he said, it is finished. Telos, to finish, to complete. Jesus had completed. He had finished. He had entirely accomplished his work of salvation on the cross. And here's what Paul is saying. When you lose sight of Jesus by faith, you stop looking to Jesus to complete you, and you start trying to complete yourself. And we all do that. You start thinking Jesus isn't enough, and you'll start trying to make yourself enough. And it's always going to be by doing and working, and striving. You'll see it show up in your obsessive desire to succeed and accomplish and make a name for yourself in your career. Or you'll see it in your efforts to control your circumstances and the people around you. Or you'll see it in your need to be thinner or to be married or to be involved in the right causes or to be accepted in certain social circles. Or it'll show up in your efforts to cut across the grain and rebel to prove that you're different and therefore enough. Or it'll show up in your efforts to be good and moral and religious. And I'm telling you, and Paul is telling you, that in the end, It's all the same, because what you're really trying to do is to complete yourself. Prove to God, maybe, prove to others, or even prove to yourself that you're enough, that you're beautiful, that you should be accepted, and that you're lovable. Listen, like the Galatians, it's very easy for us to get off track and make a total mess of the Christian life. We start thinking that we became Christians by grace through faith, but now the way to make real progress and to prove we're enough and lovable and acceptable, we have to work hard, and we have to be disciplined, and we have to be good, and that's the real recipe for cold and lifeless dead orthodoxy. You know, the key to the Christian life is really to know what you already have. It's to live by faith in what you already possessed. There's nothing left for you to do to make yourself beautiful, acceptable, or lovable. Paul is saying Jesus is enough. And to the degree that you believe that and find your rest in that, you will know the life-giving, right, spiritually vital, dynamic life that the gospel can create. I want to end this morning where we began. nobody ever gets my jokes. That's that's a Paul joke right there. Um, End where you began. Um, Anyway, too subtle, I guess. Um, Well, I started telling you about this whole time-lapse photography thing and the movement of the flower, right, that you can actually see through that technique and how its petals open to the light of the sun in the morning and how it traces the arc of the sun all day long. Without the sun… The flower shrivels, it withers, and it dies. And you need to learn the lesson of that flower. <laughs> its petals open to the sun, and it never forgets the sun. All day, it traces the arc of the sun in the sky, and it lives by facing the sun. You were made to face Jesus. The Spirit came and opened your eyes to see him by faith. And you are meant to face him continually. You are made to face him and see his smile, to see him beaming in love over you, even as he beams in love over his own son, Jesus. It's easy to get off track, though, and start feeling that he isn't enough. And you have to complete yourself and make yourself enough. So what do you do? The Spirit works by and through the Scripture that announces the gospel on every page. Here's three real quick applications you need to read it. And you need to read it knowing that you can't understand the gospel without the Scripture, but neither can you understand the Scripture without the gospel. And second, you need to do what you're doing today. You need to sit beneath the announcement of the gospel to be reminded again and again of God's smile upon you in Jesus. And then finally, you need to work this out in community, to have others push you back to Jesus through the Scriptures, so, because you are prone to wonder, even as we sang earlier, or we confessed earlier, you, you are prone to leave the God you love. You need to be forced back. You need to be pushed back here where the Spirit works through and by the Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. And we thank you and praise you that on every page of it, you have announced to us the good news of the gospel in Jesus, and that it is to be received by faith. Father, it is so, so very easy for us to get off track, to assume that we came in by grace, but the way we stay in or the way we measure up now is by our effort. We pray that you would help us that you would help us and that you would send us back to the cross, that we would live before the smile of Jesus, that we would know that in him we do measure up, that in him we are perfectly accepted, to know that in him we are perfectly loved and will be for an eternity. Father, help us to live before your smile every moment of every day, in order that we would truly be a transformed people. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.